Father, we thank you for your word. And we long to hear you speak to us through what we see in front of us now. Would you help us to see what it means for us in our lives today as we seek to follow Jesus and live for him? Amen. Well, as we um, start this new series looking at the life of Joseph, we need to talk about families. Families can be a source of joy and happiness and support and kindness and love. They can also be the source of deep pain and sadness and loss and grief, even abuse. A survey of a few years ago concluded families spend an average 91 hours a year arguing. It's almost four days solid arguing. Uh, beyond that, some live uh, for years in uh, painful conflict with a parent or a spouse or a child. Others live in sorrowful grief over those they've lost through death or divorce or some other sadness. Many people are surprised to find that when it comes to the Bible, the Bible doesn't airbrush the mess out of the families that it portrays. It does the opposite. Think of Cain and Abel, and, and, and then Abraham you know, sleeping with his maidservant, and Isaac favouring Esau and Jacob, and uh, 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 favouring Esau over Jacob, and then Jacob uh, deceiving both Isaac and Esau. And now this story of uh, Joseph the dreamer. It's well known, not just because of, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Jason Donovan, but also because it's a story that has inspired storytellers over the centuries with its vivid, novel-like story. And yet we also need to see this is, this is not just a story about a dysfunctional family, you know, the ancient equivalent of EastEnders or something. This is the story of the family of God. And if it's shocking to find dysfunctional families all over the Bible, um, you know, not least with, in Genesis with, with all those people we've just been talking about, it's surely even more surprising to find these sinners with all their flaws and weaknesses at the heart of God's plan to save the world that gets going in earnest with his promise to Abraham in chapter 12. Chapter 12 onwards in Genesis is the beginning of the answer to this question. How is God going to undo the sin and the mess caused by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? And his answer is not simply waving a magic wand or sending a bunch of rules or a thought-provoking philosophy. God's answer is to start a new family. And he says to Abraham, your family, your descendants will be a blessing to the whole world. And so as we've seen before in the last couple of years, if you've been with us, we've been dipping in and out of Genesis. These stories aren't just sort of interesting stories which capture our attention about very sinful, weak human beings. They are our story as the people of God. These are our spiritual ancestors if we're trusting in Jesus. And God's plan to create a worldwide people worshipping him and living for him, 
that, that, that big plan that's still going on today, it starts with a disunited band of brothers who can't get along. And that's where we find ourselves in the first four verses here. So see, first of all, from verses one to four, family feuds. Family feuds. And we kick off not with Joseph, in fact, but Jacob, verse one. He lived in the land of his father Isaac, in the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob, verse two. Genesis is punctuated with these titles for the various sections, and they go like this. The life of Abraham from Genesis 12 to 25 is called the account of Terah, his father. Then chapters 26 to 36 are mostly about the formation of Jacob, but they're called the account of Isaac. And now these, his father, and then these chapters 37 to 50 are called the account of Jacob. Which, and the reason it's helpful to see this <clears throat> is that although we think of these chapters as being about Joseph, and in one sense they are, and we'll, you know, we'll refer to them like that, they're really about Joseph in the context of his family, in the context of his father Jacob, in the context of his 11 brothers in particular, among whom he has a particular role. And it helps us to, to see, as we've, as we've been seeing, this is not just about an individual. It is about a family. We often read the Bible as if it's full of goodies and baddies who, who are moral examples, as if the point is you're supposed to be either like them or not like them. But that isn't the kind of story you find in any part of Genesis, and it's not the kind of story that Joseph is. Though, though, these patriarchs, as we call them, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his 12 sons, they're deeply flawed heroes. And the point is not simply to emulate what they do well and, and ignore the bits they do badly. The point is to see what is God doing with this family as we wait to see how God will fulfill his promise to Abraham to create a family to save the world. So it's the account of Jacob and his family and the camera zooms in on Joseph who was born back in chapter 30, the first of two sons born to Jacob's favourite wife, Rachel. And the fact that he had a favourite wife at all becomes a very big issue, as we'll see in a moment. But he's the son of the most favoured, and what's he doing? He's out with the sons of the least favoured, Bilhah and Zilpah, who are the maidservants of Rachel and Leah, who also bore sons to Jacob. And if that sounds a bit dysfunctional, it absolutely is. And you can imagine the family tensions straight away. And 17-year-old Joseph brings a bad report about them to his father. And that word for report always means something made up, something untrue. This is slander. This is Joseph stirring things up about his brothers. And then we have it confirmed. The first son of Jacob's favourite wife is indeed his favourite son. And he gives him a richly ornamented robe. Now, Andrew Lloyd Webber managed to launch his entire career as a composer and musician with this Technicolor dream coat. Uh, it turns out we can't actually be sure that that's what he, uh, this was talking about. Um, it's one of those words that isn't used very much in the Bible. In fact, it's used one other time um, in 2 Samuel 13. And uh, so sometimes words like this, you, you, you have to do a bit of guesswork to figure out exactly what it might be talking about. Um, and in 2 Samuel 13, it's a richly ornamented robe of some kind that's worn there by a woman. And some people think that um, it may just have been a, a robe with long sleeves. 
which wouldn't have made quite such a, an exciting musical, I think. But whatever it was, it was a coat that set Joseph apart from his brothers. It marked him out as a favourite. And so the result was, verse 4, they hated him. And they could not speak a kind word to their rather obnoxious younger brother. Unfairness, unequal treatment in a family of all places is highly destructive. I'm I'm sure we can all think of ways we've experienced that in greater or lesser ways. You know, I know know some families like to kind of joke around about, you know, who the favourite child is or whatever. Uh, But we know in reality, if that's taken beyond jest into a real sense that a parent prefers one child over another, it actually causes all kinds of wounds and scars that can be lifelong. So I was looking around for some sort of celebrity examples. Jermaine Jackson is Michael Jackson's less famous older brother. It seems he never got over being replaced as the lead singer of the Jackson Five when Michael was just six years old. Madonna's younger sister, Paula Ciccone, has has spoken of her jealousy of her older sister's fame and fortune and the way her parents related to them both growing up in different ways. Families can be places of safety and love and happiness at their best, but they can also be profoundly destructive and hurtful when they're not like that. But remember, this account is not just some families and about families it's about the people of God and at this point actually this is the people of God one man and his family and we know just as families fall out with each other and fall into dysfunction the same can tragically be true of churches and it can be true of church families and families of churches So the Church of England published its report this week into the culture of the wider Church of England with regard to race, racism. Seeking to analyse attitudes and behaviours and and processes in individuals and systems that cause people and churches to treat others with less care simply on the basis of the colour of their skin or their ethnic background. And there are also, as we know, there are ongoing reports and reviews into abuse in the wider church where people in positions of trust have abused those in their care. Now, these are deeply dysfunctional ways in which the church as a family has gone off the rails. And the dynamics here with Jacob and Joseph and his brothers help to illustrate that this sort of dysfunction is never very easy to disentangle. Jacob's favouritism towards Joseph is clearly a cause of great pain and suffering in his family. But why is Jacob like this? Well, he is, of course, the quiet brother whose father Isaac preferred his athletic and outgoing twin Esau. And Isaac himself had grown up fighting for his parents' affection alongside Ishmael. Do you see, these people are at the same time both victims and perpetrators. As we look around us and at ourselves, we know so often that is the way. Not always by any means, but often. You know, if, if somebody has an anger problem, well, look at their family background and see how anger was expressed there. 
Now, the point is that that doesn't make us not responsible for our actions, and, uh, and it doesn't make abusers not responsible for their actions. But the point is these situations are often extremely messy. And the, and the Bible and the story of Joseph and his family doesn't shy away from that kind of mess. That's what we need to see here. It is honest about what human beings are really like and these complicated dynamics that take place in families. Well, what next then for Joseph and co? Do, do things get better? Well, no, they don't. Not at all. First, they get a lot worse. So we see in the second half of the, of the verses, divisive dreams. Divisive dreams. For our younger people here, if something is divisive, it means it causes division. It causes arguments, conflict. And that is what happens with these dreams. Hey, brothers, says Joseph, let me tell you about this dream. You know, we were out in the field working. And they were thinking, well, not in that ornamental robe you weren't. You weren't working in that, were you? That's the problem with your, your robe. You sit at home with your feet up. But meanwhile, he goes on, my sheaf of wheat rose up and your sheaves of wheat bowed down to it. And the implications are pretty obvious, aren't they? It's not a difficult thing to, to work out what, what is he actually saying. He is being pretty uh, antagonistic. And then he dreams again. And this time the sun and the moon and, the, and 11 stars, 11 being the number of his brothers. And, and the sun and the moon being the greater heavenly beings that they could see, the mother and father, they were all bowing down to me. So have you got it yet? This family is going to bow down to me, Joseph. And so do you see, things aren't getting better. Things are getting more complicated. Things are getting more messy and painful and difficult. Insult is being added to injury. Sometimes life is like this, isn't it? I, I keep mentioning our puppy, and I promise not to do this every week. But if you want an illustration of mess and chaos, it's an obvious place to, to go. And one day when we'd had her for just a week or two, it was early in the morning, and getting everyone ready for school, and I dropped a grape on the floor. I was trying to put it in a packed lunch. And Chestnut went for it, and she swallowed it straight away. And you may not know this about dogs, and I didn't particularly know either at, the, at that point, but grapes are poisonous, and they can fatally damage their kidneys. And so I was thinking, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? And um, I got, first of all, once I'd Googled it and worked out that this was indeed a problem, uh, I get my phone out to ring Sue, who's just left for work, for a, um, and, you know, to, so I can have a sort of crisis consultation on this rather pressing, urgent matter. And meanwhile, she's left for work and got as far as the car where she's found out that she's got a flat battery. And so as I'm ringing her to tell her this urgent news about the dog, she is actually also ringing me to tell me the car battery is flat and she can't get to work. See, there's a problem, and then it just seems to get worse. And I'm sure that will feel familiar in all our lives in different ways. And in many ways, of course, it's rather trivial, isn't it? Well, the dog lived, glad to say, one insurance claim later. The car got sorted eventually. I, th I think, you know, maybe a slightly more serious thing, I think of a, a, a friend facing tough issues in his work, and finding um, life really frustrating in the dynamics with his colleagues. And he's kind of, he's a Christian, he's, he's been working through this and, and praying and trying to work out how to, to go forwards with that. And then, as he was in the midst of all that, he came off his bike and he broke his pelvis. 
And when things like that happen, big or small, and things seem to get worse and not better, and we, we want to throw our hands in the air and we, we say, God, what is going on? I don't get it. I don't get how this fits. And that actually is the question here in verses 5 to 11. It may not look like it is with these dreams, but we need to understand that dreams in the Old Testament particularly are, are usually significant. We've seen that already in Genesis with the dream of Jacob's ladder. But th these dreams in the Joseph story are slightly different because they're not explicitly dreams about God appearing or speaking. And so they require more interpretation than simply, you know, when Jacob dreams, he just sees the vision and he knows what God is saying through it. But if you know the story of Joseph, you'll know that these dreams feature heavily later on with other people having dreams, and Joseph asked to interpret them. And in chapter 41, Joseph is asked to interpret Pharaoh's troubling dreams. And he says in verse 32 in that chapter, the doubling of your dreams shows that they are from God. You've had, them t you've had it twice, and so it shows it's from God. And so... What that means that even though we don't hear his name here, we know that these dreams are not just something that Joseph has literally dreamt up, but they are something that God has given to him, that he's at work here. And so in the midst of the family feuds and the divisive dreams, we need to see finally in these verses gracious God gracious God this is going to be the big theme of the whole story of Joseph the theme of the life of Abraham was faith the theme of the life of Jacob was God's grace <clears throat> to a sinner and this continues now in the life of Joseph and in particular we see the grace of God expressed in what is sometimes called his providence behind the scenes working in all things for good. A repeated phrase throughout all these chapters, 37 to 50, is the phrase, God was with Joseph. There's one of them on the screen. The Lord was with Joseph. And you hear that again and again and again through these chapters. And by the end of all that happens, we see in chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph can say, you brothers intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. And in, one, in many sense, that is the sort of theme verse for the whole story, which is why it's worth seeing it as we get going on these chapters. And we're going to see this in all kinds of ways through the story of Joseph. But even with these dreams where it all starts, what we see is this. From a human point of view, things seem to get worse and not better. Here is this family already at war with each other, already falling out, and then these dreams, which we now think, oh, they've been sent from God, they make things even worse, seemingly speaking. But from God's point of view, he is working out his plan for his people. That is what we heard too in Romans chapter 8 in that second reading. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him even in sending those dreams that seem to make things worse. Think about it. Without these dreams that seem to make things worse, well, there would have been no conflict. 
The family would never have ended up in Egypt. Their descendants would not have kept their distinct identity as they began to develop as a people. There would have been no dramatic rescue in the Exodus and no defined people of God. This is so often how it works with God. It's not that Joseph's brothers weren't responsible for their anger and bitterness. It's not that Joseph himself wasn't acting with arrogance and pride as he told the story of these dreams to his brothers. Now, all those things are true, but the extraordinary thing is that God works with people like this, with sinners, with very mixed motives, and he works in people to bring about his plans. And we see that kind of dynamic in a slightly different way with Jesus himself. You know, we might think, here is the mess of sin in the world and people treating God and one another so badly. What is God doing by sending his own son, not just to live among sinners and get involved in the mess, but to die at the hands of sinners? Surely that makes things worse. But in God's providence and grace, it makes things much, much better. It is the heart of his plan to save the world. And so as we face the mess and the pain of the world around us, as we face the mess and the pain of our own lives, whether it's the sin that we do ourselves and the hurt that we know that we've caused others, or whether it's the sin that is done to us and the hurt we feel because of that, and whether it's the grief that we feel because of the circumstances of our lives and the pandemic or whatever else might be going on, we may feel sometimes things get worse and not better. And we may think, what is going on when our loved ones don't recover and they die? Or our family crisis that's been going on for so long takes a, a turn for the worse and not the better. Or our church that we love seems to be full of sin and sinners even more than we thought. Well, there are two responses when this happens, and we see them in verse 11. We can be like the brothers who are simply jealous and furious of what they see in front of their eyes. Or we can be like Jacob. Keep these things in our minds. Mary, the mother of Jesus, made a very similar response when the shepherds arrived on the night Jesus was born and worshipped him as a king in Luke chapter 2. And she's still slightly puzzled about what exactly is going on here, How, where's this going, who is, who is this child? Uh, why are they worshipping him? But she trusts God. She knows enough to say, I'm going to trust God with this, see where it goes. And so even as we begin the, the, the Joseph story with all this family mess, we know how it ends, or we can read on and know how it ends if we want to. And uh, maybe that would be a good thing to do, to, to read through these chapters so we get a real sense of this extraordinary story up to the end of Genesis. But even as we deal with the mess today in ourselves and our families and our church and the world and whatever things are pressing down on us, even this morning as we sit here, if we're trusting in Jesus, we know how it ends. We do. We do know how it ends, don't we? And we know that one day Jesus will return in glory. And one day he will bring with him the new heavens and the new earth and a place of no more pain and sorrow and mourning and crying. And we know that in all things now that we experience and the pain and the difficulties and even in, this, in our sin and its consequences, 
that he can work for the good of those who love him. In all things, he works for the good of those who love him. So as we face the, the coming weeks and months with all the uncertainties and questions and concerns that they may give, let's trust him because we can. Let me pray now. Father, in all that presses down on us in our lives due to our own sin, our rejection of you, our rebellion against you in our hearts, the things that we experience because of sin done to us, the ways we have been hurt by others, the things we experience because of living in a fallen world, and the suffering and the pain and the grief that can so often come with that. Thank you that we can be confident in you. Thank you that we can know that in all things you're working for the good of those who love you. So help us today to put our trust in you, to love you, to live for you knowing that you are the God who holds us far harder than we can hold on to you. And you are the God who we can trust. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.